2: Hello and welcome to Back Chat, Nature's monthly digest of the best of the newsroom. Now, the news reporters move very fast and it's hard to track them down and get to grips with them. So if you like, you can consider them as you might a shell of electrons. What does that make me? Answers on a postcard, please. We are here to discuss the science we've been thinking about and reporting on during April and some of the stuff that's been reported elsewhere. I'm Kerry Smith and I'm joined by three of, by now, Nature's usual suspects, Davide Castelvecchi,
1: Hello, I write about physical sciences and mathematics.
2: We also have Dan Cressy.
3: Hi, I'm going to be talking this week about the thorny issue of animal research.
2: And finally, we're joined by Richard Van Norden.
0: Hi, I'm editing lots of this news now, and I'll be whinging about batteries.
2: We can't wait. Now, coming up, we have the periodic table. It might look pretty solid, but scientists find it's a bit wobbly around the edges. Plus, lots of coverage elsewhere on a new type of battery. As Richard mentioned, we'll be finding out how charged up he feels about that.
3: Oh, no laughter. No, no for that
2: part. Fair enough. And Dan will be discussing, as he mentioned, the nuances of reporting on animal research. Now, first is some basic chemistry. Uh, Davide, you've written a story about a thing called Laurentium this month.
1: Indeed. It's a it's an extremely rare element. In fact, it only exists in the lab when you make it because it doesn't exist in nature. And it's a radioactive element. And as soon as you make it, it uh, decays and transmutes into other elements. It's, it's element number 103.
2: Sounds extremely useful. Um, what have scientists been doing with it this month? This was actually a nature paper, wasn't it?
1: It was a nature paper. And um, not many people know that um sits in a in a controversial um kind of region of the periodic table between two different blocks of the periodic table and because it's it's so difficult to make it is also very difficult to study and so the the nature paper talked about uh how they 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 were able to produce uh just one atom every few seconds and then study how much energy takes to remove one electron just one electron from the atom which is one of the most basic uh, chemical properties of an element.
2: And what, and what does that tell them about this thing that
1: I suppose is pretty exotic and they didn't know too much about? It depends who you ask. So even the authors of this, of this nature paper, they don't disagree on what the, what the results were, but they disagree on the implications for solving this, this riddle of where, where, where Laurentium should be placed in the periodic table the the International Union of Pure and Applied uh, Chemistry, which is like the official periodic table uh, entity, supposed to be, does not have an, op- an official position on, on this. So if you look at most standard periodic tables, there is uh, one little um, uh, square, actually two little squares, Laurentium and another, another element, where um, the periodic table has Kind of dots, kind of dots instead of a definite um, position or a definite element.
2: What difference does it make, really, if there's this little dotted box? Uh, you mentioned that some chemists don't even really know that there's this controversy. What difference does this make to chemistry, to
1: chemists? Well, it uh, highlights the fact that these recurrent, recurrent, or periodic, as it were, uh, properties of elements don't quite hold up the way, you know, as, as promised or as advertised. The, pre- the periodic table has a lot of exceptions to its rules.
0: I always think of it as kind of <clears throat> looking all nice and structured up top and then fading into a bit of a blur when you get to these exotic elements at the bottom. Because some of the problem here is that when you get to these elements with enormous numbers of electrons, the speeds that some of these electrons are going are very close to the speed of light. You get these relativistic effects that affects the energy of some of the other electrons. And that causes what should be a nice periodic recurrence of properties in, say, how easy it is to get the electron out. That all starts to break down, which is kind of why people are arguing right about where Lorentzian fits. So it kind of stops being this nice stacked repeating structure of eights, which is what you
1: kind of learn in, in school. There are certainly practical implications for chemistry teachers. And for people who print, they are the, the, the periodic tables that go on on classroom walls.
3: Speaking of the periodic tables people print, Davide's been stealing mine all week. So if anyone has a spare one, please do post it into him.
2: We've learnt this about you, Dan, this week, that you possess at your desk not only a scientific calculator, but now a copy of the periodic table on paper, sitting around.
1: Yeah, both of which are at least 20 years out of date. It's nicely laminated, although, yes, it's out of date.
2: Perhaps someone could send you one in the post. Wouldn't that be delightful?
3: No, no, no. I, I, I think You want your are, own one back? I've got mine. Davide needs it is.
2: Yours sounds like a kind of piece of science history, though, at this point, rather than um, a useful document for reference. Yeah, it, it's got some
3: disputed names, which I think were settled about five years ago. So.
0: Yeah, I still remember going to a lab uh, in Germany where they make these really super heavy elements right at the end of the periodic table that last even a shorter time than Laurentium. And you literally see these periodic tables up on walls with, like, the extra element written in in pen or the name crossed out and the new name put in. And then you've got this kind of Bible of chemistry, IUPAC, that Davide mentioned that, you know, pronounces on things like should sulphur be spelled with a PH or an F or... <coughs> PH. <coughs> um, it takes them ages, you know. So element 113, which is heavier than Lorenzium. Uh, probably has been created by two vying groups and IUPAC started looking at it two or three years ago having already looked at it once and the guy said oh we'll do it quicker this time and two and a half years later nothing's happened they're only slightly faster than the geologists trying to work out whether we are in the Anthropocene or not but beyond them they have to be one of the slowest scientific committees that I'm aware of.
2: Well, ironic given the speed of some of the reactions in the half-lives here. I mean, geologists you can expect them to do things slowly because how long is an eon after all? They've got they've got a lot of time on their hands. Um, what else in chemistry, by the way? I haven't done chemistry since high school. I guess I was told a lot of lies. The periodic table seems to be not so firm as it once was. What else was I lied to about? Well, you were probably
0: you were probably lied to about uh the way electrons go around atoms, you know, it's not like planets in the solar system, uh, you're nodding your head, meaning maybe you got past those lies.
2: Oh, no. No, no, no. (laughs) Still labouring under those false impressions.
0: They're sort of conceived as quantum objects, so they don't really go around in circles. They just sort of exist and buzz around the atom. And we only sort of calculate the probability of where we might find them around the atom uh, in sort of clouds of probability density. And the periodic table is actually organised into these blocks that Davide was talking about. These blocks are kind of named after the different shaped clouds of probability density. So there's the S block, where the electrons tend to be in this spherical cloud. There's the P block for dumbbell-shaped clouds. And there's the F and the D block for more complicated clouds. And the argument about Laurentium is whether it's in the F or the D block, allowing us to have the brilliant cross-heading of our story, f up, because obviously we're not sure.
1: I saw it's that days.
2: wasn't that risque. I was, I was very happy a. with that. You've opened your mouth wide as if in horror.
1: I was, I was uh, completely opposed to it. No, I am just joking.
2: <laughs> would you have gone back and told your high school selves about the uh, quantum nature of the spherical or non-spherical orbits of uh, electrons around? Do you think that would have helped you, or is there is probably a reason people keep this out of chemistry education?
0: I don't think it helps at all. I, 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 I think it's quite right to lie to school children. And I think that they they should be told the truth as they get older or as they maybe look at nature.
2: You heard it here
3: first, folks. The, the most important thing that school children learn, though, is that everyone who studies chemistry is incredibly cool. All
2: right. Well, I don't know about you, but that's probably quite enough chemistry for me for now. And I've been lied to a lot, so I'm pretty disillusioned. Um, Dan, we're going to come to you next. Um, you've been working on a story, an exclusive, in fact, about a new drive from one of the UK research councils to to sort out how researchers are using animals in their work.
3: Yeah, this is kind of part of a broader issue that people have been worrying about for ages, which is how research is reproducible and whether a lot of studies that are done are actually reproducible. If someone else does the same experiment, will they find the same thing? Some researchers have been warning for a while that reproducibility is a big problem. And one of the things that they have identified as potentially part of this problem is sample size. So as it applies to animal experiments, that's basically how many animals are you using in each individual experiment. There's a huge drive to reduce the number of animals that are used in experiments overall, um, partly because they're just very expensive, but also because there are these obvious ethical considerations. So the story that we have written this week is that the UK funding agencies are going to start asking for more details when people say, I want to do such and such an experiment. And the funding agencies are going to say, can you show us why you think you need that number of animals? Because there is a concern in some quarters that there are some experiments that may just be too small to give reliable, reproducible results.
2: So too small to be useful, so maybe you you don't do that experiment, or maybe to add statistical power, you put more animals into that same experiment.
3: Yeah, and that's obviously, to some people, a controversial thing to say, because some people think we shouldn't be using any animals in experiments. Obviously, at Nature, that's not something we believe. We're pretty clear that animals are absolutely essential to science, and especially to medical science and also to basic research. But animal research is always quite a thorny issue to report on,
2: yeah, and I, and I actually wanted to talk a little bit about how, you know, you guys as reporters cover this this kind of topics that are very nuanced and can be a bit like lighting a touch paper in some communities. You've told us about the story and and it's a story that's very important to nature's community, but you have to cover that quite carefully. I mean, how did you sort of go about, once you've done your reporting, kind of trying to present this in the fairest way?
3: Um, So when we're writing a story like this, which could be taken by some people in a certain light as being critical of animal research, that's something we have to be very aware of. And I think the important thing for us is that every area of science can probably be done better. And it's... Kind of one of the duties of people at Nature to sort of try and hold a mirror up to the community sometimes so that they can see where they're doing really well and where there is room for improvement. And that doesn't mean that we're saying that people out there have done things badly or done things wrong necessarily. But this is an important issue and one that needs to be discussed if science is going to be done better, which I think is something that everyone wants.
2: I mean, the headlines here take a take a, a lot of thought on stories like this, and and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on how long it took to come to a you know a good conclusion. There's a lot of teams at work on this kind of process, right, of putting putting those few words into a headline and stand first. And you went for UK funders demand strong statistics for animal studies. I mean, did that take a long time to
3: finesse? Um, headlines are always one of the things that are most fretted over, I guess you could say, uh, in every newsroom, whether it's a scientific or the sports desk or, or whatever. Um, the other thing to point out is that the reporters are pretty much not responsible for the headlines. This one did take a, even more thought than usual because you have to be very careful about word use in, in animal studies and especially in subjects like this where some people will, will try and see a side of this story which maybe other people wouldn't agree with. There's also the wording difficult for our editorial
0: on this. As we publish in print and the way our editorials are laid out, we only had two words for this entire story. You love
2: a good logic problem, though, don't you, Richard? I love it,
0: So we went with Numbers Matter, which I think is also a maxim for life, but was also a very good way of summarising what was going on here.
3: We're going to be taking Richard round the corner later and he's going to have Numbers Matter tattooed across his chest.
2: He already has data tattooed somewhere. I think it's on his knuckles. Do you think? Yeah. Just repeated, left and right hand. Numbers Matter, as we've discussed, but, I mean, what... Does this, what does this in fact mean for the kind of overarching big numbers involved here, like more animals in, in research kind of in general?
3: Well, interestingly, according to some of the people I spoke to for this story, using more animals in individual experiments doesn't necessarily mean you would end up using more animals overall. The idea is that if these studies are quite small and they're not easily reproducible because of that, you might be able to do better science by doing fewer bigger studies, which would then mean that overall the number of animals might not go up and it might even decrease.
2: All right. Well, thanks, guys. And we're going to finally move on and talk about, in fact, what happens to be another nature paper. Uh, Richard, you promised us you were going to whinge about batteries and here is your chance. You've currently been feeling rather flat as a result of some charged coverage of a new type of battery. My apologies. First, what was the finding here?
0: Well, it's really current research. This came out in Nature at the same time as the periodic table paper. It's about a flexible and cheap aluminium battery, which scientists say could be a very fast charging and safe alternative to your lithium-ion cells. Could even charge up in a minute, according to the paper. Now, this is very good work in the field of aluminium batteries, but there are innumerable problems with it that needs to be overcome before this gets anywhere near your mobile phone or your car. And in not enough of the reporting, were these problems mentioned? And I think that this is a a general issue with the reporting of breakthroughs in renewable energy and battery research, even though each individual paper is is perfectly good. For example, in this one, very few people have mentioned that this uh, wonderful aluminium battery holds about a fifth of the energy per per unit weight than your lithium battery so your mobile phone only lasts four or five hours not a whole day or your car only travels 40 miles not 200 miles Um, the battery also is a very small battery at the lab level and it works by having aluminium ions shuttle back and forth uh, in between graphite but the graphite swells and, and shrinks as these things shuttle back and forth And also it only works very fast because you have a very small amount of graphite in your tiny lab-based aluminium cell. As soon as you scale this up to something that might go in your phone or your car, you might see the swelling and shrinkage start to crack the electrodes and, and this no longer work. And you might also find that because your graphite electrodes get bigger and bigger, it takes longer to charge up. So the fast charging might just be due to the small size of the cell in the lab. I'm not saying this is definitely going to happen, but there are frequently things like this where a lab scientist comes up with an advance. the advance here was that it's been very hard to cycle aluminium batteries back and forth, and they've managed to do it for thousands of cycles. Very impressive. Um, But frequently, lab science in batteries does not translate at all into commercial research and is nowhere near commercial research. Indeed, could be 5, 10, 15 years away. Now, for a reporter, it makes it very difficult to report on such findings because you just say, battery could charge in one minute, flexible, brilliant, problem solved, and don't say anything about its poor capacity, uh, its wrong voltage, which I haven't even mentioned, um, and the problems of you know the size of the electrodes and so on. But all of these could be fail points. And there are many examples of big car companies signing deals with young startups and then falling flat on their face and failing. In fact, the whole story of batteries has been one of people promising way more than they can deliver, which these researchers are not doing. You know, they've said in their paper what they can do. But but the way it's been reported has been too breathless for my liking.
2: You couldn't really write a a news story for the BBC, perhaps, that was... That went into the negatives far more than it went into the positives, and sort of rained on the parade of these new battery techniques.
0: Well, yes. I mean, the BBC actually did this quite well. The Guardian did this very badly. I suppose the way to report it is to really temper your headlines and temper your, you know, your first lines, and to say, you know, fast charging, flexible battery could be alternatives to lithium if it over, you know. Uh, You don't want to put in too many mays, might be's, possibly's, because no one will read it. And that's the eternal tension. Do you want to read about this story? If it just says maybe might, you're probably not going to read it. I mean, do you even need to know about It's another question. This aluminium battery ain't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Come back in half a decade. I sometimes struggle with whether these single papers should be reported on in, in these ways perhaps better to do a feature on why is it so hard to improve batteries or where is the next battery breakthrough coming from using this paper as kind of your top line, your peg.
2: Rather than having to write a takedown of everything with a sad face.
0: Yeah. The problem with um, batteries and energy in particular is that a lot of the research that's close to the market is done by small startup companies who need to make money. They need investment or they need public investment. And they say things, and you just cannot back them up. And you're kind of stuck as a reporter. Do you go with what this company says? There's nothing published. You you can ring up and inject some scepticism by having some research in a lab tell you that this doesn't sound very likely. But it makes it very difficult to report on these kind of energy stories, where most of the stories are being released not for the benefit of you, the reporter, or the general
3: public, but purely aimed at big investors. We will be revisiting this battery story
2: in 2020. We will. And then if you're still tuning in 2050, quantum computers, special issue.
1: I was going to say, in fact, if there's one field where uh, we we journalists like to write about futuristic results, that's computing. um, There's been waves of of, uh, hype of things that seem promising for, for years. We've all written about carbon nanotubes. Then we all wrote about quantum computing and graphene and diamond. And now carbon nanotubes are making a comeback, maybe. At the same time, lab research tries many avenues and, and a lot of it leads nowhere most of the time. And then in many cases, maybe 10, 20 years later, you find applications that you didn't, think, you didn't imagine for, for your basic research. And, and um, I would like to do a shout out for, uh, we have an editorial um, this week about um, Moore's Law
2: Which this month turns 50.
1: So Gordon Moore, uh, 50 years ago in April of 1965, predicted that, well, he first, he noticed that the number of transistors on a chip were doubling every um, year and a half or so. And he predicted that this trend would continue. And in fact, it has continued not, he, he thought it would continue for maybe 10 years, but in fact, it went on for much longer. And now there's various people who say, yeah, maybe we're reaching the end of it, maybe not. But um, it certainly has changed everybody's lives.
2: And the editorial says basically that we don't really know which technology will come along to kind of try and take Moore's law on and, and keep it going even further.
1: Right. So that there's there's many different uh, new physics uh, avenues being tried and uh, we just have to wait and see. But that's how basic, basic research, research works. Isn't Moore's Law really just kind of a business plan more than a law? It's a it's a target. The industry gets together and, and says, well, we have this target. We promised, in fact, we promised investors, people who have Intel or IBM stocks, that we will reach these targets every two years. We'll, we'll, we'll have a new generation. Actually, every year they have a new generation of chips. They put the investment to make it happen. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you want.
2: Just need a Moore's Law for batteries, then.
1: Van Norton's Law, go.
0: Well... If you look at batteries, if you look at the cars that were around in 1905, 1906, those batteries had, uh, if you think about the weight of those batteries, how much less energy do you think could be packed into them than the lithium-ion batteries we have in cars today? Just have a wild, wild guess. Factor of
2: something. um, A hundred.
0: A hundred, yeah? Ten. The answer is six. So we haven't even increased battery uh, energy per weight by you know by even one order of magnitude in a century it's just a completely different problem than the Moore's law I asked one guy uh, Gerd Seder at MIT about like why it was so hard to improve batteries why can't it be like Moore's law and he basically said well we're not stupid
3: it's just really really hard but <laughs> that, that was his answer
2: I'm sure that was never your implication <laughs>
3: So it sounds like Van Norden's battery law is that anything you read about is at least five years away and at least half as cool as it's being made out. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up.
2: Excellent. All right. Well, if no one has any more uh, business, I'm going to thank Dan Cressy, Richard Van Norden, Davide Castelvecchi for more of their reporting. As always, check out nature.com slash news. Also on the Nature News website this month, we're celebrating the Hubble Space Telescope's 25th anniversary of being in space with a super package of features, images and videos. So if you're at your desk and you feel the need to gaze at some stars, nature.com slash Hubble is. Is the place for you. Send us your thoughts on Backchat and the Nature Podcast to podcast at nature.com or come and find us on Twitter at Nature Podcast, at Nature News, at, at Rich VN, at DP Cressy,
1: at D Castelvecchi.
2: Excellent. And we'll also be on the Nature News Facebook page.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino
3: from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?